0: hey what's up everybody welcome to catholics with bibles the podcast dedicated to empowering catholics to read interpret and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason i'm your host chase cross let's dive in howdy howdy everybody hope you're having a fantastic memorial day weekend i hope you enjoyed some beautiful weather uh ours was a bit mixed here In the great state of Austin, state, great city of Austin, Texas. Um, Yeah, we had a day or two of pretty nice weather and then a day or two of not so nice weather. And then a night of thunderstorms, which equaled our baby not, not sleeping. So it was one of those vacations where you come back from vacation and you're not really rested, but you're mentally a little bit rejuvenated because you saw the people, we saw my family, at my uncle's ranch. Um, but yeah, hopefully you had a great three-day weekend. All else fails. You got an extra day off of work. So once again, welcome to Catholics with Bibles. I'm super excited for this episode. Uh, the first episode where we're going to be diving into uh, John in more of a bigger, broad stroke uh, way. We are going to be looking at namely the first two chapters of John and The Gospel of John, before we dive into it, uh, actually, before we do that, let's get into the Greek word of the day. So the Greek word of the day is logos, which means word, and so you probably heard that before. It's a pretty popular word to talk about uh, in, like, talks and stuff. If you, like, go to, like, a conference or something like that, logos, a lot of people know it means word but not many people know actually what all the different things that the word could mean or what was used for uh, in Greek, not outside of the new Testament. And so the, this word or this idea or a statement is something that has to be internal before it can be external. And this is the really beautiful thing about the word and this word comes up namely in John chapter one. We have, in the beginning was the word, the logos, ha-logos in Greek. And the ha-logos was with God and the word was God. It was in the beginning with God and all things seemed to be through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So like I said, a logos, a word, an idea, a statement, a phrase has to be internal before it can be external. To be internal before it can be external, and this is pretty amazing theologically speaking. When you think of the Trinity, so when people try to tap into the Trinity, uh, they <laughs> they tend to they tend to make themselves heretics without meaning to be. So I remember I was in a, the, a trinitarian theology class in my master's, and it was like. Every other statement, you like say like one preposition wrong, one adjective, one adverb, one one word wrong, and you're basically a heretic. Like you, you you miss the mark because uh, Trinitarian theology is so difficult and it's so tough, but it's so necessary when it comes to trying to better comprehend the God who loves us, made made us, and saves us. But at the same time, it is better to oversimplify and be accurate then try to explain what we don't understand fully now what do i mean by that well i'm a youth a director of youth ministry at a church in austin i have worked in youth ministry for a long time and i've worked uh, with some younger grades too but uh, my my uh my better grades that i work with is, is middle school and high school and college age students and young adults um I'm just not really great at explaining things to little kids. Um, I tried to, my wife kind of just laughs at me because she just basically like, all you do is change the sound of your voice to talk like you're talking to a little kid, but your words are the same. So they still don't know what you're saying. I was like, Oh, well I tried. Uh, but anyway, I've seen a lot of well-intentioned catechists try to explain the Trinity, but totally miss the mark. Namely all these uh, analogies of like a three leaf clover, or water, steam, and ice, or the sun, the rays, and the heat, um, or a triangle, all of those are straight-up heresies, right? The Catholic Church, nope, that's not, God is not a triangle, he's not like a triangle, he's not like a three-leaf clover. Why? Because it's three-leaf clover, it's a a heresy of partialism, um, or modalism in another way of, which is the, you know, ice, steam, water thing, but it's basically, you know, if you take a three-leaf clover and cut off one of the leaves, and it's still a clover, it's still it, it's one one clover leaf is not the whole clover leaf, right? And so, therefore, it's, it's an inadequate analogy of the Trinity because it, each person of the Trinity fully possesses the Godhead and is fully God, fully divine, yet is uniquely a, a, a person, right? So, three persons, one nature, full in full possession of. Uh, the entire divine essence. So a lot of these analogies just fall short. And so what I tell people is like, I'd rather you get it right and maybe not ex- fully explain it and leave it as a mystery than try to overexplain it and get it and just explain it poorly. And simply saying, yeah, God is three persons, one nature. We call it Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then leave it at that, right? Leave it at that And if uh, somebody, a kid or a student asks you, well, how how do you know that? Or, you know, why is that? Or, you know, how is that? You know, a few different things you can say is like, well, you know, it's a mystery that Jesus Christ revealed to us while he was a man and the church teaches us, right? Boom, leave it at that. Uh, It's an appeal to authority argument, uh, which if you know logic uh, could, is potentially, you know, a logical fallacy. But at the same time, we can't also just say that, you know, it's a mystery. It's a mystery of the faith. And even Thomas Aquinas didn't tr- argue that you know he fully understood the Trinity, but he did present a pretty awesome analogy that ties us back to the Word. So the problem is with Trinity: it's you know how can th- there be three persons in one nature, all within the divine essence? Well, like I said earlier, a Word is a reality that is internal; for it is external. So when, when you were thinking of the analogy for the Trinity, uh, it's called the psychological analogy for St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, not as in like psychoanalyze, but rather as in uh, psyche, it's the Greek word for soul. And so for the Trinity, we have the Father, right? The Father from all eternity thinking of himself. And so psyche is in soul, we have to understand how human reason works to understand how this analogy works. So right now, I'm looking out the window and there is a tree. It's a really pretty tree summer, it's turning green. The image of this tree then enters my mind, or enters my my imagination, really, my memory. And then from there, I can abstract and get the idea, the essence, the form of the tree. It's treeness in my mind. Because I can fly to Japan, look at another tree, and even though it looks different, I still understand that it is a tree. From all the different trees I've seen that are in my memory and my imagination that I've abstracted and kind of gathered, that there's this idea of a of treeness of tree. And so, when I see a new tree that I've never seen before, I can still understand that it is a tree because it sh- shares the essence or this form of this of this treeness. So, my intellect and my intellect has abstracted from my memory. It's a very simplistic uh, view of that, but you get the idea. And then from there, I can. If somebody asks me, "Hey, what is that?" I can then express this interior idea, this form, this essence, as an exterior word, namely the word "tree." That's how we can uh, translate other languages because we all have it's the same idea, different expressed words. So when it comes to the Trinity, we have the Father thinking of himself for all eternity, and he thinks of himself perfectly. And he imagines himself perfectly, not physically, obviously. He's comprehending himself perfectly is a better way to say that. And from there, he can abstract, still within the, the divine nature. This is all this all like I said that all happened in my mind. And then from there, he abstracts from himself, and it becomes this expressed word of what the Father is. And this word, because God does thinks perfectly and expresses perfectly, is perfectly like unto himself. And this word is the second person, still within the divine essence. So the Father, perfectly thinking of himself, abstracts, and we have this perfect image of the Father, the word, the second person of Trinity. But obviously that doesn't prove the Trinity. That just is an analogy to understand how we can have two persons in one nature. Because I can't prove to you that this word is another person. That's That's a revelation, right? That's something that Christ revealed to us while he was man. But we can at least now understand how there can be two different realities in one essence, two different persons in one essence, I should say. Maybe the Holy Spirit, who is spirated, because if the Son is generated, we don't want to say that the Spirit is generated, because then there'd be no difference from the Father and the, spirit, or the Son and the Spirit. So the Spirit is spirated, namely, it's the sigh of love of the Father and the Son, while totally and fully comprehending each other. Yet this all happens outside of time, so that this doesn't. It's not that there ever was a father without a son because the father can't be a father without having a son. So if he's a father eternally, it means he had a son eternally, right? So don't think that the father came first and all of a sudden there was a son and all of a sudden there was a spirit, like God's outside of time, this is from all eternity. And so we have this word, this logos, going back to John 1, John 1. And yet in John 1, also if you want to do more on Trinity theology, St. Thomas Aquinas, it's extremely difficult, but extremely fruitful. Uh, I'll post a book in the show notes to uh, help you dive more into that. But be warned, they are not easy reads. Um, all right, cool. So going back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things seemed to be through him. The, in the beginning. In Arche in Greek. In the beginning. This obviously kind of brings us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, you know, God made the heavens and the earth. So John's starting his gospel in the new beginning. And what does the new beginning entail? The new beginning is the word, the word of God. And something that's really fascinating about John one and two that we often I think overlook and take for granted is if you read you know, read the the prologue, which is John one, you know, one through about 028, give or take. Um so we can argue twenty eight eighteen. Um if you if you though if you looked at verse twenty nine, verse twenty nine starts with the next day. The next day. Well, what happened on the first day? Well, in the beginning was the word and words was God and the word was God, and then we have Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it transitions into, and this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. When when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confesses and did not not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. So day one is John proclaiming that he is not the Christ, yet the Christ is to come, and he is not worthy to untie his sandal. He was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus. Coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." So day two, John beholds Jesus. But remember, John and Jesus were uh, cousins, so it's it's he's known Jesus for a while. So it's not like he just randomly sees Jesus for the first time and says, "Yo, behold the Lamb of God!" And Jesus is like, "I've never met you." Um, <laughs> uh, even though he, John was inspired by the Spirit, right? He was he was blessed in the womb. Um, like the prophet Jeremiah. And then skipping ahead to verse 35, chapter one, says, the next day again. So it says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. So this is the second time, behold the Lamb of God. And this is when Jesus picks up a few disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and Simon, and then in verse 43, we read again. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have, have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So this is the next day. Once again, Jesus Picking up more uh, disciples. And then look to chapter two, verse one. On the third day. So we had the next day, the next day, the next day. And the third day. Well, what would that make this day? It would make it the seventh day. We know Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. And the pinnacle of creation was the day of rest, the seventh day. But the seventh day is also the day that Adam married his wife Eve. So let's look at chapter two more closely. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Also, side tangent, Jesus is not being disrespectful there. Don't interpret it like that. When people hear this, it's like, oh, see, Jesus disrespected his mother. No, it's, it's a phrase in Greek. It's just, it's awkward to translate. It's not being rude. It's just conversation. Anyway, going back, verse five. and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, they pour the then they pour the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this was the seventh day. It was the feast, the wedding feast of Cana. There's a few really interesting things John's doing here. And there's so so many, so many different uh, analogies and metaphors and different things. I mean, literal books have been written on this. Um, And the first thing we already alluded to is that Adam and Eve became husband and wife on the seventh day. And on the 7th day Jesus is found at a wedding. Cuz he is the bridegroom. He's he, I mean this is why this is part of the reason why we consider weddings a sacrament. Cuz we know Jesus loved them. And we don't know who this couple was, but we know Jesus loved them and respected his mother because he it would have been an utter embarrassment to run out of wine. Because remember, G, uh, Jewish weddings weren't just like a one and done thing. It wasn't a one day thing like it is now. It, this was like a week long party, y'all. Like this was not like a casual thing. Every day they were waking up and they were partying again, you know? Uh, because, why? Because it was such a joyous, amazing, beautiful moment that is divinely blessed. And to run out of wine early would have put the bride and the groom to shame because they were supposed to provide. Yet Jesus comes as the true bride, true bridegroom, and provides an abundance of amazing new wine for his bride, the church, everyone at the wedding. Because as Catholics, we're we're an Easter people and hallelujah is our song, as JP two says. We're a people who rejoice because the church is eternally participating in the wedding feast of the lamb. And Jesus is providing abundantly for us, y'all. Even if you're struggling right now in this COVID crisis, whether you, you lost a job, some of you know lost a job, they got sick, Maybe they died. Jesus, the bridegroom, is providing. Another really cool thing about this chapter—there's I mean, so much can be said in light of the seven days. But in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 through 12, we read, "He who touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be cleaned. Well, what do we find in Ch- John 1 and 2? Well, we know that Jesus was baptized by John from the Synoptics. So Jesus was baptized by John before the wedding feast. Even when you look at the Luminous Mysteries of the Rosary, it's, get that order right. Yet at the wedding feast, where, what was present? We have the six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, because we had they had to purify themselves, they had to cleanse themselves. Because if they're unclean, they couldn't participate in the wedding. Yet, Jesus doesn't use that water to purify the outside. He changes it into wine to purify the inside because Jesus comes to bring a renewed, elevated, and interior purification. And that's amazing. And it happens on the seventh day, y'all. It happens on the seventh day, just like Numbers said, right? On the third and seventh day, on the seventh day. Gotta be purified. And numbers, if if you touched a dead body, yet Jesus knew everyone that did not belong to him was dead spiritually. Anyone outside of his body, the church, is not truly alive. So it's on the seventh day that Jesus appears at the wedding and brings a new purification with new wine at a wedding of rejoicing to a bride and a groom that he loves and a mother whom he respects. And this is just beautiful, y'all. So for John, he's painting this just truly a beautiful, Amazing portrait of a God who, yes, created us naturally. Genesis 1 and 2, right? It's the creation accounts. He creates us physically. And then he sends his son, his word. The father sends the word, the second person of the blessed trinity, truly God, truly man, fully divine, fully human, to save us, to bring us a new purification to save us because we can't save ourselves, y'all. Just like Adam met his bride on the seventh day. And John here, he's painting a picture of Jesus being presented to his bride for the first time. It says the first of many signs. The book of John, at the end of John, we read that this was a book of signs trying to prove to the reader Jesus was divine. Of all the Gospels, John is the most adamant of Jesus' divinity. Not that the other ones weren't, but John is the most. The first sign that he did to prove, to win over his pride, is the wedding feast at Cana, turning water to wine, to new wine, to to purify our souls, to save us, to bring us new life. This is a beautiful thing, y'all. So remember, we're, we're an Easter people. Hallelujah is our song. This weekend is the, the church's birthday at Pentecost. So next week, we're going to do a Pentecost podcast episode. But remember this Sunday, man, it's the church's birthday, y'all. So let's let's party it up. Let's have a great time. Let's celebrate the Lord's resurrection and the Holy Spirit's descent among us and the birthday of the church. God bless y'all. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you again for joining us on another episode of Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krauss, and I'll see you next time.